Good morning. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm part of the team here. Thank you for coming right on time at the 9 a.m. I don't see anybody walking in right now, so no one to shame. Uh, and hopefully we'll see them all at 1045. So good to see you. Um, yeah, we are kicking off a new series today, and I'll talk more about it here in a moment. But if you're new to our church, you know, I say this a lot when we kick off a new series, but, but I really, really extra mean it this time. This is such a great series to jump into because uh, we do this uh, almost every fall. Um, we explore in the fall as we sort of kick off the new school year, you know, for those of you who've got kids in school, we sort of recalibrate and reorient ourselves around the idea of, of our church and why we're here. Like, why do all of this? And we'll talk more about that a little bit later today and throughout the next several weeks. But um, it's, it's really, for me, as I've thought about it and prayed about it, our leadership team has explored it, it comes down to the life we want. And what I don't mean is the life you think you want. This is not like a health and wealth gospel teaching. It's not, you know, some self-help thing, uh, you know, cloaked in Christianity. What I mean is discovering the life God has for us, which actually ends up being, whether we know it now or not, the real life that we want, that every human being wants. And so today, to begin, I want to I share a story with you. In the year 1181... In Italy, in a small town in Italy, a baby was born. And there were lots of babies were born in 1181 in Italy, I'm sure. But one baby in particular, his name was Giovanni. His parents named him Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone. That's a long name, right? Long, good Italian name. Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone, born in 1181. He was born to a wealthy family. His father was a cloth merchant and uh, did really well for himself. Now, as Giovanni grew older, he grew wilder and he grew unruly. And he loved to party. He loved to drink. He loved to make a mess of things. And he actually became known in his little town as um, a negative worldly influence on the other young men in that town. And so he was kind of a troubled young man, caused a lot of chaos and ruckus. And then when he's 21, Giovanni enlists in the military. Shortly after that, he finds himself in battle. Shortly after that, he is actually captured by the enemy and spends almost a year as a prisoner of war. He almost dies in that prison. He goes through his significant health uh, troubles. And then finally, he is released and he returns home. And upon his return home, Giovanni, who had seen the worst of humanity uh, over the course of that war and had grown up as a wild, unruly, chaotic young man, Giovanni has a vision of the risen Christ. And after Giovanni has this vision of the risen Christ, he changes everything. Everything changes about him. He relinquishes earthly riches. He embraces a simple life. And then he spends the rest of his life preaching the good news of Jesus. Now, when Giovanni went through his, his conversion experience, his transformation experience early on, the people in his hometown doubted that it was legitimate. Because all they knew about him was that he was this wild, unruly, chaotic, troubled young man. Today, most of us know Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone uh, uh, under the name St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis once said this about his conversion experience. 
He said, I have been all things unholy, and if God can work through me, he can work through anyone. How does this sort of dramatic change occur in a person's life? St. Francis, um, who was known for many things, he was one of the things that sort of he hinged his life on was a statement that he called the primitive rule or um, the first rule, the central tenet of his life. And it went like this, to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. Everything changed for St. Francis of Assisi because he decided that his life would be dedicated to following the teachings of the Lord Jesus and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. So this leads us to a question this morning. How do followers of Jesus, which many of us, not all of us, but many of us in the room are, how do followers of Jesus follow the teachings of Jesus and walk in his footsteps? Because I think most of us would agree that though many of us say, yes, I'm a Christian, when we reflect on the reality of our everyday lives, we have trouble with this. Most of us believe being a Christian means intellectually believing a set of ideas that Jesus came, lived, died, came back to life for my sins so that if I accept him and receive him as Lord, when I die, I'll get a ticket to heaven. That's not untrue. But according to St. Francis, it's incomplete. And this is an all-important question because it is the question of this big, fancy Christian word called discipleship, which is the primary calling of the Christian life, to be a disciple of Jesus. Many of you have heard this before, but the word Christian is only, you can count on one hand how many times you'll find that word in the Bible. However, you will find the word disciple Hundreds of times. The primary calling of the Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. Many of us know Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, right? A, a passage we often call the Great Commission. Let me just read a part of it to you. Then Jesus came to them, his disciples. This is after his resurrection. And he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Not Christians, not people who say the right thing and look the right way, but disciples of all nations. And this is why Westgate Church exists. If you've been around for a while, you know this. If you are new, then welcome. We are here primarily to be and to make disciples. That's the vi that has been the vision of this church community for going on two decades now. And that is not going to change. Because that has been the vision of the church, not for two decades, but for 2,000 years. We are here to be and to make disciples. But again, for most of us, being a disciple of Jesus, follow, learning the way of Jesus, living the way of Jesus, following in his footsteps is actually quite daunting. Most of, the, most of the time, most of us don't feel like we're truly, again, following his teachings and walking in his footsteps. And it's a struggle. Discipleship is a struggle for many of us. It's not easy. It's hard. We'll talk more about that a little later. But here's the thing. The struggle of discipleship to Jesus is not, I want to take the guilt away. The struggle of discipleship to Jesus is not a problem because it means you're a failure. 
That's not why it's a problem. Do not, do not ever believe the lie that God's love for you is contingent upon your performance. It is not. God's love for you is contingent upon his love for you. No matter how much you, you think you're succeeding or think you're failing, God loves you. So the struggle to follow the teachings of Jesus and to walk in his footsteps, the struggle of discipleship is not a problem because it means we're failing. Because the love of God is not based on our performance. The struggle of discipleship to Jesus is a problem because it means we are lacking. The struggle to follow the way of Jesus in our everyday lives is not a problem because we're failures if we don't. It is a problem because if we don't, we are missing out on the life God has for us, which is actually the life you want. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How many of you feel like your life is full? And I don't mean like, like full to the max, I have no margin. I mean like a full, rich life. Like this is it. I'm living the life God has for me. Some of us do. Most of us don't. That word full in the Greek is the Greek word parasos, and it actually means um, what you might think. It means complete, whole, without need. It also, in Greek literature, is often translated into the English word extraordinary. So Jesus says, I have come that they, that you, that I, that we might have life and life to the full, life that is complete, life that is whole, life that is without need, a life that is extraordinary. How many of us want an extraordinary life? All of us. You don't have to raise your hand because it's literally all of us. No one in this room is like, no, I'd be pretty happy with just an ordinary life. If we could have it our way, we would live an extraordinary life. This is the life we want. All of us, Christian or not, religious or not, every human on the planet wants in some form or fashion an extraordinary life. And it is my core belief that the life of discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus, following his teachings, walking in his footsteps, that is the life that leads to the life we want, the extraordinary life. This is why often here at Westgate we will define a disciple as one who is learning and living. Not just learning, not just in your mind, knowledge, but also living in practice, walking in his footsteps. Learning and living the way of Jesus. Daily being formed into Christ-likeness in all of life. Not on Sundays for an hour and 15 minutes only, but in all of life. In your home, in your workplace, in the classroom that you belong to, in your private life, in those secret moments no one sees. And we also believe that Christ-likeness, we could talk endlessly about this, but in uh, the simplest of terms, we believe that Christ-likeness expresses itself in a life of love moving in three specific directions. First, to love God. Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, to love our neighbors. 
Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. And then to love one another, John 13, love one another, Jesus says, is I have loved you, so you must love one another. These three loves, because they for us here at Westgate model and exemplify what Christ-likeness looks like, these three loves are the pillars upon which this community is built. We exist to be and to make disciples who are learning and living the way of Jesus here in Silicon Valley in all of life, formed into Christ-likeness, which looks like a life of love toward God, love toward neighbor, and love toward one another. I just told you in 90 seconds what this entire thing is all about. That's why we're here. And so for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to deeply explore each of these loves and how God forms and transforms us as we give ourselves to these loves and how those things lead us to the life we want. But before we do that in the coming weeks, what I want to do is um, I want to begin today by asking the question, okay, how can we, again, going back to the story of St. Francis, how can we experience the sort of dramatic shift that St. Francis experienced, or the Apostle Paul, or Peter, or any number of characters from the Bible or church history. How do we experience that sort of change? Because until we figure out how to experience real transformation in our lives, then embracing and learning and living the way of Jesus expressed in those three loves, it's going to be really challenging. Because those loves don't come naturally to us, right? That to, to love in that way is not natural. There is so much about life that sort of reorients our focus, not on love outward, but just on me, love of self. So we need change. And again, for most of us, the life we have is not really all the way the life we want. And so what we do is we go looking for change. We do this all the time. Almost every action you take, almost every decision you make is in some form or fashion an expression of your desire for change under the belief that if you can change these few things in your life, it will actually lead you to the life you want. Here's the thing. What God offers isn't change. What God offers is transformation, and there is a difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being not changed but transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. God invites us to a process not of just change, but of transformation. That word transformed in the original language of the text is the Greek word metamorphau, which from which we get, you can probably guess it, we get the English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is not just incremental minor adjustments in someone's life. Metamorphosis makes you think of probably like a caterpillar entering a cocoon and exiting, right, re-emerging as a butterfly, right? You think that that's what metamorphosis is. Has anybody ever like gone on YouTube and uh, watched a video of what actually happens to a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly? Don't do it because it's disgusting <laughs> and like really jarring. The caterpillar in the cocoon doesn't just change. 
It doesn't just go crawl up in there and go like, oh, I've got a couple wings and then flies up. That's not what happens. Caterpillars enter cocoons and literally disintegrate. Like the caterpillar just like turns into goo. And then that goo reforms, is transformed, metamorphosis, into this beautiful butterfly. Okay, that's what God wants to do. Sounds painful for some of us. And I'm just going to be honest with you, in many ways it is painful. Because transformation is not incremental, little, you know, like um, manageable adjustments to life. It is an utter transformation of who you are. It's a complete from the inside out shift in your entire being. But this is the path to the life God has for us, the extraordinary life, the life we want. But here's the thing. Most of us, especially here in Silicon Valley, we are too busy chasing change to experience transformation. We keep ourselves so busy chasing change and we fail to experience deep transformation. Let me um, give you some examples. About a year ago, the Pew Research Center did a study. They surveyed thousands of Americans. What they discovered was that other than family, Americans today, other than family, Americans find the most meaning in their life in their career and material wealth. Outside of family, number two and three, career, material wealth. Career is great. It's not a sin to try to succeed in your career. And even material wealth in and of itself is not bad. Americans are also uh, five times more likely, five times more likely to find meaning in their favorite recreational hobbies than in spirituality and faith. So kudos to all of you on this long Labor Day weekend being here at church instead of golfing or whatever, right? But here's the thing. We live in a culture. Listen, none of those things are necessarily in and of themselves bad. Career, even like, you know, material wealth, providing for your loved ones, um, Recreational hobbies, leisure, the things you like, they're not in and of themselves bad. They just are not the path to the life you want. And yet most of us believe that they are. And so what happens is we give inordinate amounts of energy and time to these things. This is, again, exponentially true here in Silicon Valley. So a few thoughts. First, especially here in Silicon Valley, I've come to believe that we live in what I would call an achievement accumulation and preferred habits culture. Achievement accumulation and preferred habits culture. There was a 20th century economist named John Maynard Keynes, and I know nothing about economy. My wife studied economics. I had to actually ask her how to pronounce his last name. That's how little I know about um, economics. But I read part of a fascinating essay from him that he wrote in 1930 called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And in this essay, Keynes predicted that by his grandchildren's generation, two things would happen. The economy would be so productive that the average person would only work 15 hours a week and that the standard of living would increase by 800%. That's what Keynes predicted in 1930. 
Now, as you all know, Keynes was both right and wrong. The standard of living has indeed increased exponentially so in the past century. We have more than we've ever had before, especially here in Silicon Valley. I know that's not true for everybody, but for many of us and for the majority of our city and, and the Bay Area, that is true. We have more than we've ever had before. And yet we are also, this is where Keynes was wrong, we are also working more than we've ever worked. And we wear our busyness, busyness like badges of honor. It's because we believe the myth that we can achieve and accumulate our way to the lives we want. If I can just achieve more, if I can have more, if I can earn more, I can have the life I want. Achieving and accumulating in and of themselves are not evil or sinful, but it is a mistake to believe you can achieve and accumulate your way to the life you want. And we exhaust ourselves chasing. And then in our exhaustion, what do we do? We run to preferred habits. Read leisure. We run to Netflix binges and weekend getaways and coffee crawls with friends and yoga. And none of those things are bad. None of this is about guilt. It's just about perspective. They're not bad. Preferred habits, leisure, not bad. But a mistake to believe that they can lead you to the life you want. We also live in a culture today shaped by individualism and a variety of cultural narratives. You guys know Robert Frost, uh, the poet, and his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. And you all know that famous line that has become a mantra in our culture today. I took the one, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And we see it on coffee mugs, and we just hold it up like, this is me. The individual. I'm not going the way everyone else goes. I'm going to forge my own path. There is actually sort of a beauty in that. God does see you for who you are. He knows every hair on your head. You're not just a number or a widget in God's big grand scheme of the world. That's absolutely untrue. You are an individual loved as an individual by God. But the belief that always taking... The individual route leads to the life we want is a myth. This is, um, this is, again, this line from Robert Frost is an often quoted inspiration for individualism about forging your own path. Um, and it has become a predominant cultural narrative, right? We talked about this a little while ago, uh, I think earlier in um, the series about the unseen, about how we live in a culture of many truths, like my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And how that's a falsehood, that's a myth. Okay, that comes from this sort of individualistic cultural narrative. You know what's really interesting? Frost, he's misunderstood. On the record, he, has sa he said in interviews that he is using a technique in this poem called the unreliable narrator. And the second stanza of the poem that nobody ever quotes, by the way, um, clarifies, he actually says about these two roads, the individualistic road and then the more communal road where you belong to something bigger than yourself. He actually says, you know, both roads are worn and they're, they're pretty much the same. That's what, that's what Frost says in the poem. 
He himself admitted that he was actually mocking the idea of single individualistic decisions that could change the course of an individual's life. And I'm not saying that single decisions cannot change the course of your life. They absolutely can. All I'm saying is that this um, poem and this line is misunderstood in the same way that you and I misunderstand this idea, this cultural narrative that if I just forge my own way, that'll lead me to the life I want. That nobody can tell me otherwise. My truth is my truth. I do my thing and I will cultivate the life that I want. Because individualism has become the operating system of our day, the cultural narrative that life is primarily about me and my wants, desires, preferences has become an assumed truth. But the cultural narrative that individualism is the path to the life we want is unraveling. We are more individualistic than ever before in our culture. And at the same time, we are sadder and lonelier than ever before. A couple of months ago, Harvard University did a research study, and they found that more than one in three Americans identify as being lonely almost all the time. They actually found that over 50% of young mothers with young children, over 50% find themselves lonely almost all of the time. Some of us in this room can relate. They actually found that almost two out of three Americans between the ages of 18 and 25 identify as lonely almost all the time. They are the most digitally connected generation in history. They are a part of the global village called the internet that has promised to connect us in ways that humans have never been connected before, and yet they are lonelier than any other generation in our culture. What does that tell you? Sherry Turkle, in her her book, Reclaiming Conversation, about this whole concept of the digital age and how digital technologies sort of sell us this myth of connection, She describes it this way. She says, we turn to machines for companionship even as we seem pained or inconvenienced to engage with each other in settings as simple as a grocery store. We want technologies to step up as we ask people to step back. This whole cultural narrative that if I can just curate my own life online or my own life in real life, have everything sort of center and orbit around my wants, my desires, my preferences, that is the path to the life I want. It is a lie. It leads to loneliness and disconnection. And so... If achievement, accumulation, preferred habits, individualism, and cultural narratives can't actually lead us to the lives we want, what can? A few thoughts very quickly before we wrap up. The way of Jesus teaches us the antithesis to all of these values of our day and age. If you want the life God has for you, which is truly the extraordinary life, the life you want, then instead of focusing all your energy and believing that you can achieve and accumulate to an extraordinary life, we must begin to instead receive and give. Instead of achieve and accumulate, we must begin to live open lives that receive the love of God and give that love away. 
The writer David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, he says this, you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside of yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. 1 John 4, the writer says, we love because he, God, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Love atrophies if it moves in one direction. Love comes alive when it is in constant motion. Receiving the love of God and giving that love away. Receive and give. Receive and give. Instead of achieving and accumulating, again, not bad, bad in and of themselves, but instead of believing you can achieve and accumulate your way to the life you want, we must begin to live lives that are open to receive the love of God from God and then to give that love away. This is one of the reasons why during these Next Steps weekends, we are asking you to take a next step in. One of the ways you can take that next step in is, for example, to serve. Listen, if you've been around the church for a while, I get it. You hear some pastor up front say, hey, sign up to serve with kids or with students or on the worship team or serving coffee or greeting or whatever. You hear that and you think, okay, here we go again. You just need a warm body to fill a position. Listen, let me be honest with you. Yes, there are serving needs. Yes, we would love wonderful people like you to fill those needs. But that is not our primary goal. Like I'd rather, I would rather just have our staff do everything if I didn't think serving, giving of the love God has given you out of your gifts, your passions, your skills, your talents. If I didn't believe that that would actually begin to help you take a step or two closer to the life you want, we wouldn't ask you to serve. I promise you. Primarily, we ask you to jump in because we believe it is in receiving the love of God and then giving that love away in practical ways that love comes most alive and you begin to find meaning in your life in a way that is absolutely extraordinary. If you don't believe me, ask someone who's been serving here at Westgate for a long time. Ask them why they do it. Instead of preferred habits... If we want to experience the life God has for us, we have to begin to, to implement into our lives intentional practices. Intentional practices. Philippians 4, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Not write down great notes and have the journal collect dust on your desk. Put it into practice. James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is why St. Francis said, I want to follow the teachings of Jesus and walk in his footsteps. It is to do the stuff Jesus asks us to do and in fact to do the stuff that Jesus did. 
The life we want is not found in preferred habits, in leisure. And again, those things are not bad. They're actually quite helpful from time to time. But if we want to journey down the path toward the life we want, then we have to also begin prioritizing intentional practices that form Christ in us. This is one of the reasons, out of many things, uh, this is one of the reasons why we ask you to join us to worship, to sing, and to, to um, sit under the teaching of God's word. It's one of the reasons. It's not because we think our church is awesome. It's not because we think we have the best show in town. We don't. It's not a show. We don't really care that much about the performance. It's not a performance. We're not trying to impress anyone in this room. What we are trying to do is gather as a community and physically, bodily, mentally, emotionally, spiritually practice the story of God together. Because that's what shapes us. It's what leads us to the life we want. You do not come to grade the songs or the sermon. Last Sunday was a better sermon than this Sunday. Don't do that. It's not about, I mean, like, that's personal. Don't do that, you know? <laughs> Just don't. And I know some of you do because you send me emails. <laughs> and there's grades. B minus. And then the Asian in me is like, I'm a failure or whatever, you know? Intentional practices. Also, individualism does not lead us to the life we want. Communi uh, committed community is what leads us to the life we want. John 13, a new command I give you. We'll explore this verse further in the series later. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is not easy to do. We'll talk more about this later in the series, but this is impossible to do if you define love as a feeling. Because the reality is you will never feel great about everybody in your church community. You just won't. The reality is if you're married, you don't always feel great about your spouse. So do you stop loving them? Some people do. And that is destructive to a marriage, right? Brett McCracken in his book, Uncomfortable, he says commitment matters more than compatibility. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. The American theologian Steve Clifford says the Christian life isn't difficult alone. The Christian life is impossible alone. The life we want is not found in individualism and perfectly crafting a life to suit our preferences. It's found in committing to a community where we can belong. This is hard work, but do the work and you will experience life to the full, I promise you. This is why we are asking you to join a life group. This is why we are asking you, um, if you have kids or students, to encourage them as lovingly as you can to jump into our kids' ministry or our student ministries. Again, it's not because we have the best show in town. It is because we believe that when we, when you commit to a community with all of its goodness and all of its bad, with all of its beauty and all of its flaws, when you commit over the long haul, you will experience in that committed community the life God has for you. And finally, cultural narratives, the stories that culture tells us, that's not what leads us to the life we want. It is biblical teaching. 
that leads us to the life we want. To hinge our worldview on what God says to us through his word given to us. Ephesians 4, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. John 17, Jesus says, I have given them, that's us, your word, and the world has hated them. Culture has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We spent four weeks talking about the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The life we want is not found in blindly trusting cultural narratives, but in seeking truth through Scripture. This is, again, why we sit under the preaching of God's Word Sunday after Sunday. It's why in our life groups we deep dive and dissect how God's Word is impacting and transforming our lives. It's why we have something uh, called Discover the Bible. If you don't know, you can go on our website. There's a whole group of people in our church who commit to reading the entire Bible for, um, over the course of a single year. And they operate in little cohorts. And we have monthly Zoom calls where we can ask questions about what's confusing. So if you've never done that, I would ask you to go check that out if you're interested. I'm going to invite Mark and the team back up, and we're going to sing and respond here in a moment. But, but I want to, um, again, we're going to deep dive into these three loves in the coming weeks. But I want to just reiterate the point, because I want to make sure we enter into this whole season very clear-eyed and sober-minded. Change is easy. Minor, slight adjustments to your life is, is manageable. Transformation is hard. Um, uh, Jenny and I had kids a little later, and so I'm 43, but my children are only seven and four. And in recent months, I've had this sense, man, I gotta like, I gotta physically, I've gotta physically keep myself in better shape. Otherwise, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be able to handle like really diving into my kids' lives and playing with them with joy as they get older and older, especially my son, who's four. He's, he's like a sturdy little boy, you know? So when I pick him up, I was like, oh, my goodness, my back. He's only four. How am I going to do this? So um, I stopped during COVID, but in recent weeks, I re-upped my gym membership, and I've been going back to the gym. And it's an interesting thing that I think it might be my personality. It's an interesting thing that happens to me. Changing my schedule to go to the gym, it's not like super simple and easy, but it's been easy enough. I just get up early, I put it on my calendar, I drive to the gym, I walk in, you know, and I sit at the machines or whatever because, you know, I'm, I'm not like in shape, so I only use machines because I, I don't want to hurt myself and have Steve come up here and tell you, Jay's dead. He had an accident with a, with a you know, bench press or something. And I find myself sitting there and, um, like, it's easy for me to sit. Sometimes I find myself sitting there and I'll see all of these other men and women who are just ripped in front of me. 
And sometimes, because I'm silly like this sometimes, sometimes I'll sit at the machine, like the, the bench press machine, and I'll stare at these guys that are just ripped, and I'll think to myself, you know what would be awesome? Is if I could just sit here and stare at them, and then my body became like this. <laughs> and I'll think to myself, like, you know, I'm a pastor. Maybe I can pray a miracle into being. <laughs> It's like, Lord, I'm not going to lift any of these weights, but I'm, I'm committed to prayer, Lord. <laughs> like, just give me those biceps or whatever, you know? Sometimes I'll think that. And then, of course, I snap out of it. I'm like, I'm wasting my time. And then I'll set it to 50 pounds or whatever, you know, and just start, right? And I just start lifting. And, um, and I don't really feel any difference. I mean, I do. My body feels different. I what I mean is I don't see any difference. You know what I'm saying? But I've only, go I've only been going to the, I've been back at the gym for like three weeks. So what do I expect? But that's what we all want, is it not? You want three weeks and then, I just want three weeks and then I look like Steve. That's what I've wanted. Right? But like, that's not how it works. I need three months. I need three years. I need three decades. You know? Transform change is easy. Going is easy. Doing the little things is easy. Transformation is hard. And it takes a lifetime. But it is well worth your life. Luke 9, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. St. Francis said this near the end of his life. Start by doing what is necessary. Go to the gym. Then what is possible, another 10 pounds. And suddenly you are doing the impossible. Looking like Dan Perkins, <laughs> our Iron Man executive pastor, right? Start by doing what is necessary, then what is possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. This is a life worth living. This is the life you want. It's the life I want. So we're going to sing and respond. But before we do, I'm going to put these four movements up on the screen. Receive and give the love of God. Intentional practices to form Christ in you. Belonging to a committed community and leaning into biblical teaching. I just want you to take a moment and ask yourself the question right now, which of these do you need to take a step into today? Not like maybe later, I mean today. And maybe it's none of them. Maybe God is not moving in you or pushing you in that direction. We would never force it on you. But would you just take a few moments, open your heart and mind, and ask the question, God, what do I need to do today to begin stepping into the life you have for me, the life I want, the extraordinary life? Is it to more effectively and openly receive and give the love of God? Is it to implement more consistently practices in my life that form Christ? Do I need to step into a committed community? Am I doing life alone? Do I need to begin untethering myself from all sorts of cultural narratives and lies and begin living under the truth of the scriptures? Just take a few moments to think about those things prayerfully. And then Mark and the team will lead us and we'll sing together.